This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit TACC.org. And Texas Farm Bureau. Considering running a political campaign but not sure where to begin? Texas Farm Bureau's campaign seminar can help. Register by August 30th. More information at txfb.us slash camp seminar details. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for August 18th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I'm joined by Health and Human Services reporter Karen Brooks Harper. Hello. Politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hey there. And politics reporter James Bettergon, who uh, did his homework this week and watched The Departed after our discussion last week during the podcast. <laughs> you, got a, you got a review for us, James? It's, it's good. Holds up. Still very good. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, this week it's going to be a little bit of deja vu. It seems like every week we talk about the pandemic and we talk about how the Texas legislature continues to be kind of stopped in its tracks by the lack of a quorum. But the news continues and I want to talk about the pandemic first. It keeps seeming to get worse out there in Texas. Uh, a few kind of scary anecdotes from the week. Last week in San Antonio, 26 minutes passed with no ambulances being available to respond to 911 calls due to the number of cases and, and you know just overwhelming nature of the healthcare system there. The Iran Sheffield Independent School District in West Texas had to shut down for two weeks due to rising numbers of cases. I think both in the school, but also in the community, a concern about kind of a lack of hospital capacity there. And last week, there were 75 hospitals in Texas without any open ICU beds. That was the highest number that we've seen since the pandemic began and by a pretty large margin there. Karen, all those anecdotes, I believe, were in your story that went on our site last night. And that was under the headline, the new Texas COVID-19 surge could be worse than anything the state has seen yet. Not exactly a uh, optimistic headline there. What, what caused you to kind of reach that conclusion in, in the story for, for yesterday? No, it's a, it's a grim headline. And, and, you know, it's really not what anybody thought they'd be reading um, in August of this year. If you were to ask everybody six months ago when the vaccines were coming out and everyone was kind of rocking and rolling and, you know, you were seeing, uh, you know, a million doses uh, in a week and things like that, um, the future was looking rosy. And then um, the vaccine effort hit a wall, the Delta variant uh, took off, and uh, it is, is uh, as contagious or close to it as chickenpox, and for the younger listeners who never had chickenpox, unlike myself, and uh, lots of the medics that are now at the top of the food chain telling us about how bad it is, it's easy to catch, and Delta variant was, and Delta variant is, is nine times, up to, uh, sorry, up to eight times more infectious, so all those things than the original variants. So all those things combined are mean that we are in a, a very strong fourth surge. Um, we are about 2,500 hospitalizations, daily hospitalizations away from the peak on January 11th, which was about 14,000 and change. Um, we are uh, 
closing in on the new cases uh, record. Uh, and most of these records were, were in January, right? The peaks. Um, in January, it was, you know, on January 17th, the, the seven day average of new confirmed cases was 19,000 um, and change. And then, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, we were at 14,005. So um, the only thing really that isn't spiking um, faster and higher than ever before uh, has been the deaths, which are climbing, um, but they are, uh, they are still way below the daily death toll that we saw we were seeing in January and last summer with the previous surges. Um, but the issue that, that hot, that, that's making this the worst, and, and I'm not the one that made that conclusion, really, it was the people that were talking to us about it, um, is that the hospitals have a fraction of the staff that they had in January when the big surge hit, and um, thus a fraction of the beds, you know, the ICU capacity in terms of numbers of beds is a moving target based on how many they can staff. There's a bed, but nobody take care of the patient in it. That's not an available bed. These hospitals have the staff. I mean, they have the space, they have the beds, they have the PPE, they have the medicines. They don't have the staff. Um, you know, the infusion of some state nurses uh, coming this week, uh, 2,500, very small amount relatively, uh, will help a little. Um, but the peak's probably not going to come for another couple of weeks. Uh, we'll probably see the death toll spike uh, a little bit faster in a couple of weeks since that's kind of a lagging metric. Um, so overall, people are thinking it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we weren't prepared for it going into it to begin with. So <laughs> that's how we arrived at that headline. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the staffing one is an interesting thing is, you know, you, you do look at those curves and the case numbers, you know, you mentioned that the peak for the seven day average was what around 19,000. I think at least the last two days, we've been over 20,000 for the number of cases. Of course, that fluctuates during the week, depending on certain things, you don't see as many cases reported over the weekend. So that doesn't necessarily mean we'll go over that, uh, that average, uh, anytime soon, although it's not looking particularly great. But the staffing no, thing is, is a big one, right? And uh, I noticed, you know, we, we saw that announcement from Greg Abbott about the 2,500 medical personnel that are being helped. I noticed there had been a quote from the Parkland Hospital in Dallas, um, which is a very big hospital, but the, the chief there, medical officer there saying that they, just them in Parkland were 500 nurses short of, of what they needed to have. And so when you see it that way from a statewide perspective, you know, if, if you were to give Parkland all the nurses they need, that would be one fifth of the total kind of extra staffing in the state. And so, you know, the, the concern is going to remain even as they as the time goes on to, to boost that staffing up. Karen, you mentioned that the death rate is lagging right now and that, that that has not gone up in the same way. Do you, what are you hearing about that? Is that largely because it's a lagging variable and it takes time from infection to someone to reach the point where they reach deaths? Or are we seeing something in there to suggest that maybe the vaccination process or even just, you know, our ability to treat this, this disease has, has at least made the worst possible outcome less likely than, than it would have been, you know, in earlier spikes. I'm actually hearing several theories about that. And I'm in the process of looking into it a little bit further, but the skimming the surface of what just people have been talking, remarking to me as we've been having these conversations in the last few days has been <clears throat> several things. One is that um, 
the vaccinations, you know, people are protected from the vaccinations. Um, the, the, the population that are coming into the hospitals are younger, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which means they are less prone to death, you know, um, although there are more of them coming in, you know, you have that factor. You have the, the you've got a little bit better, better knowledge of how to treat it. It's, there's, it's not, they don't have the magic bullet, but they do have the monoclonal antibody infusion centers that they're opening back across the state. And a lot of these hospitals have, have been doing and are doing many more of lately. Uh, one CEO out in East Texas told me that they're doing three times as many infusions now, and he thinks that's why his numbers aren't worse and the deaths aren't higher. Um, and then the vaccine, uh, as I mentioned, um, is protecting people even who have mild symptoms um, uh, from catching it and dying from it. And you really don't know which ones of them, healthy or not, would have died from it had they caught it. And certainly with the Delta variant running around if these, you know, senior citizens, you know, seniors hadn't been vaccinated, you know, you'd be seeing some pretty high numbers, and, and, you know, and, and we are seeing high case case counts going back up in the nursing homes, but we're not seeing the death uh, toll rising alongside that as we did a year ago. Um, so probably everything you mentioned, plus everything I mentioned, plus a few more factions, factors that nobody has mentioned yet um, are, are why we haven't seen that death toll spike. But we also saw the trend of the death toll following a few weeks behind the hospitalization numbers and the IC numbers, which of course kind of makes sense. If you think about it. Yeah, you people, know. People can spend weeks in ICU and then die from COVID. That's so right. they, they don't track right next to the other two numbers. They're they're kind of their own entity. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Yeah, the, the age thing is a very interesting point too, because if you look at the vaccination stats in the state, you know, people who are basically 50 years and older, the 50 to 79 year group and the 80 year group are both the vaccination rate around 70%. So that most vulnerable population is, you know, more vaccinated than the the rest of the state compared to 16 to 49 year olds, you know, a little bit less than half are vaccinated. And of course, children, you know, many of which are not vaccinated at all. And even that 12 to 15 year old group, it's only, you know, a little bit more than a quarter of of people. So, you know, when we talk about this being a a pandemic among the unvaccinated, you know, the that unvaccinated population, uh, you know, appears to skew lower or younger uh, in and of itself. So, So that's interesting. Do we have any indication, any signs as to where the peak might be? I mean, one thing that did catch my eye in your story was you mentioned that there have been some reports that Austin's cases have, you know, seemed to plateau a little bit in the last couple of days. I was looking at our positivity rate, you know, basically the percentage of people who are tested that come back positive. That was kind of skyrocketing for, for weeks and has kind of leveled out a little bit in the last couple of days. Is there any is there any cause for optimism or do you think it's too soon to tell at this point? I mean, what I'm hearing, the, the projections I'm hearing are putting the peak about two weeks out. Um, that certainly can change if, you know, people mask up more and um, practice the social distancing and follow some of those rules. Those can, those can, or those you know, guidelines, those, the, the, the scientists and the people making the forecasts are saying that could, that could keep us from reaching much more of a peak. Um, I have also talked to a former health commissioner who said he doesn't think that the hospitalizations will reach the January level to the number, although we're so close. It doesn't really, you know, it's just kind of a a study in numbers at that point, because we're already kind of in that same predicament that we were in January. Um, But, you know, 
RSP cases are going down and the kids that are that are crowding the uh, the pediatric hospitals with kid cases of COVID and RSV, those are starting to go down, which means whatever's transmitting this is starting to get contained. Um, the, uh, you know, the death is, uh, I mean, the uh, hospitalizations slight downward tick um, on a day over day. So not long enough to be a trend, but, you know, they're kind of grasping at any, you know, those small lights that they can <laughs> find for some optimism, but I, I wouldn't say that anybody's telling me it's ha going to happen. You know, it's going to stop in the next few weeks. It's, we've probably got some more time. Yeah. yeah and of I course, you know, the, the new challenge we're facing now is school going back into session. Um, universities will be coming on, you know, here pretty soon. I, you know, I, I took my, dropped my kids off to, to elementary school yesterday. Day and and I, I know you know the the debate continues. We talked about this last week about masks in schools and and whether that will kind of lead to you know more interaction, more opportunities for the virus to spread, basically. And so, you know, still a lot to be concerned about. Um, you know, we also had a news yesterday in which you know our highest profile public official in the state, Governor Greg Abbott, has tested positive. James. You you've been watching that news. What tell us the latest on on what happened happened there with our governor? Well, yeah. So yesterday afternoon, uh, the governor's office uh, sent out a press release saying that the governor had tested positive for COVID nineteen. He's been going around the state doing his both his public work um, as governor, but also campaigning for his reelection next year. So I think that's where the daily testing happens. Um, we were told he's doing daily tests and this is the first time he got a positive response. The governor had been campaigning uh, the night before on Monday night um, and had tweeted pictures of, uh, of a standing room only crowd as he called it in Collin County. Um, I didn't see any mass in that crowd. It was a very full crowd and he was mingling with them. Um, so there's also, I guess, concern about, you know, how much more uh, the virus spread. Was that the, a spreading event? Um, and so, but but the good news is that the, the governor um, is doing okay. He is not showing any symptoms as of yesterday. Um, he's not showing any symptoms. Um, he's doing okay. And he plans to isolate um, and self-quarantine in the governor's mansion. And he sent out another video yesterday as well saying he's going to keep up on top of all the work and keep in touch with the legislators and keep doing his thing. Um, and didn't really seem, uh, didn't seem all that uh, concerned. He, he is, I think they said that he was using Regeneron, um, uh, but no symptoms. And I think that's sort of where we are. Sure. And of course, Abbott was one of the first in the state to get vaccinated. He, you know, got that first dose, you know, before in front of the TV cameras and, you know, uh, either late last year or early this year. So, of course, the um, the the vaccine did not prevent him from getting infect infected. But all the science shows that if you do get infected after having been vaccinated, that there's a very good chance, a very good chance that the the case will not be as serious as it might otherwise have been. So, yeah. so that is good news to be watching there. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to be said, Matthew, is that uh, the, the governor has been a strong opponent of uh, mask uh, mandates um, to the point that the state has fought them in court in school districts and in local government offices. Um, and so obviously people yesterday when the news 
uh, dropped that the governor had uh, tested positive for COVID-19, uh, they brought that up as an issue as well, that, you know, uh, this potentially could happen to other people if there are, if the mask mandates aren't allowed to move forward. So there's also that little political wrinkle. And also for you music lovers, Jimmy Vaughn was in the presence of the governor yesterday. We reached out to him. He's, he's okay. He tested negative um, and he's feeling <laughs> fine and wish the governor a speedy recovery. Yeah, you know, it is, of course, the governor is someone who is meeting with a lot of people at a lot of different times and, you know, but it does just kind of show you the, how, how kind of scary this can be and how quickly this thing can spread when you're at these public events in a room and, and, you know, uh, Collin County or uh, north of Dallas and with a whole bunch of different people you know we're talking as Karen mentioned earlier the the chicken po if it spreads just as well as the chicken pox does you know you're you're talking about a lot of people who could potentially get infected from that and, and from those various meetings so we will see kind of what the um, impact is not just to him but to you know the people who have been around him for uh, these past few days. Um, but I think that um, does it for now on this topic. Let's uh, pause for a minute to hear for our, from our sponsors. Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas Incorporated is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And the wait is over. The 2021 Texas Tribune Festival program is here. Join us virtually from September 20th through the 25th for big thinking interviews and nuanced discussions on politics, policy, and the day's news. Buy tickets now at tribfest.org. All right, we are back and we are now eight days away from when House Speaker Dade Phelan signed arrest warrants in the Capitol for 52 Democrats who had broken quorum and prevented the Texas legislature from passing bills, including of course the voting rest restrictions bill that prompted the Democrats to leave. So far there have been no arrests and at least publicly that I've seen no sign that they're really being chased down by law enforcement in any kind of significant or public way at least. And that means the most action we've seen in the Texas Capitol over the past seven days was, you know, some flooding uh, on Sunday during a big rainstorm. Uh, Cassie, what's going on here? Why, why haven't we seen any action here? Why haven't we seen anyone, you know, brought to the Capitol in handcuffs so far after, after all that action last week? Yeah, uh, you pretty much uh, summed it up, Watkins. Um, and I think the short answer uh, to ans uh, to your question is that no one really knows why we haven't seen uh, House Democrats still missing from the chamber being brought back to the chamber uh, from law enforcement. Uh, you know, we've uh, Patrick Svitek, one of our uh, one of uh, you know our other Tribune reporters, and I, um, you know, have been checking in with House members over the past few days. It sounds like uh, law enforcement and the House Sergeant at Arms has paid a visit to some members' homes, but as uh, House Republican Caucus Chair Jim Murphy acknowledged uh, during a news conference at the Capitol Monday, arrests uh, so far have not been underway. 
Um, you know, he at one point uh, likened uh, these visits that, that the house sergeants uh, have been paying um, to members' houses, you know, more like a jury summon, quote, a paper that's delivered. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the conversation about whether to arrest these members and, and bring them back to the Capitol will happen down the line is essentially what he said. Um, you know, Democrats, of course, have been challenging the civil arrest warrants, uh, you know, in the courts. The Texas Supreme Court last night actually issued a, a final ruling of sorts on the matter, saying that House leadership can, in fact, compel Democrats uh, to return back to the chamber. And then, you know, on the Republican side of the aisle, you've seen a growing sense of frustration just among uh, that caucus over, you know, not necessarily uh, the arrests themselves per se, but just still this impasse that uh, everyone's continued to find themselves in uh, as we near the halfway mark of the uh, second special session. Um, you know, Tan Parker, a, a Flower Mound Republican who's who's now running for a special election, um, you know, uh, for a spot in the state Senate, um, put out a statement yesterday pretty much calling on Phelan to make good on following through with these arrests. You know, he said, you know, the time's over for, you know, being cordial and being nice. We need to, you know, bring these members back to the chamber and, and get, you know, the business done. So few Republicans, I think, privately would agree with that. You know, they would just like to see some action on this. And uh, that's where we are. James, Cassie uh, said something that I think is is key to to emphasize here is that the halfway point of the tech, the special session approaches, right? I mean, we're, we're eventually going to reach a point where you can bring Democrats back, but then how much time are they going to be have to be able to pass this kind of laundry, laundry list of issues that Abbott wants the legislature to be working on here? I mean, it seems to me like the clock is ticking here. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about that uh, a couple of days ago in terms of, okay, well, what if they do come back at some point this special session? But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there aren't really the same kind of deadlines as there are during the regular legislative session, right? So, um, you know, what is to stop them from just going, I mean, if they come back with, you know, a week left or, you know, two weeks left, or I don't know if you can do that. I can't, I don't want to do the math right now, but <laughs> if they have like a week and a half left, I think that's plenty of time. They, I, I, I don't see any reason why Republicans wouldn't just work through, you know, every hour of the day to get it done. Um, and of course there's stall tactics from Democrats, but um, I, I think if they, if the Democrats came back, uh, the Republicans would uh, do everything in their power to ram as much uh, of the agenda through as they possibly could. Cassie, what do we know about where the Democrats are right now? Uh, so as the first uh, second, or I'm sorry, as getting all of my words mixed up here, as the first special session was wrapping up, uh, you know, I think that there were upwards of two, maybe still three dozen uh, Democrats still up in DC, you know, that's where a majority of them had camped out for the past few weeks during the first special session. Um, a number of them came back. We still don't have a clear read on how many are necessarily up in DC. You know, you've seen suggestions on social media uh, that, you know, most if not all of them are back home in their districts or have decided to, you know, go elsewhere out of state. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, uh, 
that's that's really all all we know at least publicly so far um you know eddie lucio um has returned to the chamber um he was back i think a, a week and a half ago uh, after skipping you know the first special session um and then you know there have been a few others who have just kind of trickled in um but you know again not enough to make quorum i think we're still around um in, anywhere from like five to seven in that range uh, according to the last official uh, tally or vote count that we saw in the House, um, that you know need to come back in order for there to 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 make quorum and and you know as James was talking about like you know have these have these committee hearings and debate this legislation and get it passed out of the chamber. What what are we hearing? What are the Democrats saying? Or have they given any in, indication of their mm -hmm. plans? Are we are we seeing this as an indefinite kind of? hiding or, or 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 is there are we any yeah. closer to this being resolved i guess um i i don't know uh, and i don't think a lot of people know i think that you have democrats who want to come back you have democrats who want to continue to uh, remain absent from the chamber you have democrats who could probably go either way depending on where the majority of the rest of the caucus wants to go um celia israel i think was talking or to the washington post um, for a story that that the paper ran and you know she she essentially was just taunting house leadership over the optics that could potentially arise if state uh, law enforcement you know went out and detained many of these corn breakers you know a number of whom are members of color you know Celia Israel said something to the effect of you know that that GOP leadership is bluffing you know would you really want to arrest a woman of color so I mentioned that just to bring up the point you know if you're somebody like Dade Phelan or you know anybody else who's in Republican leadership this is a pretty fine line that you're having to walk right a number of these Democrats helped get you elected speaker right um, unclear what those numbers are going to look like the next time uh, you know that we have a regular session um, but you know, what line can you walk between appeasing your Republican colleagues who have been in Austin showing up to the chamber every day and, you know, these Democrats who, um, say that they won't come back unless there's, uh, you know, more negotiations to be had on the elections bill. I yeah. think that's the, I think that's the key too. It's the elections bill and the rest, the rest of the agenda, you know, I think they can deal with, but their ultimate goal is to, to kill that bill or, well, yeah, their ultimate goal is to kill that bill. Now, in the conversations that we've been having, the politics team with members of both sides, really, I think we've been asking, like, is there any room for negotiation? And both sides are kind of like stuck in their in their side. Like nobody really, correct me if you're hearing anything else differently, Cassie, but nobody's really budging. And so like, there is no compromise to be had. Republicans have said that publicly. Democrats have said that publicly. And so until there is some type of governing, some type of compromise, some type of statesmanship here. I don't, I, I, I just don't know when this gets resolved or how it gets resolved. I think Republicans are fine just waiting it out um, and saying this is going to get done sooner or later. But, you know, this is, I think it's safe to say that this is, is getting old for, for all of us, really, uh, the reporters included. And most importantly, for for Texans, for like the average Texan who's like uh, who's thing, looking at this and saying, yeah. like, what, what are we doing here? One thing, uh, just, you know, it, you're essentially getting at the question, like, what's going to change that what needs to happen in order for the dynamic that's been present between Republicans and, and Democrats in the chamber uh, to actually like shift in any sort of notable way and something that's just 
kind of been brought up in conversations that I'm having with members is, again, a nod to what we've all known to be true for most of this year, which is, you know, that, 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 that the legislature is going to have to tackle redistricting at some point this fall. And of course, the leverage uh, in that process uh, is going to lie, uh, you know, with, with the Republicans. Um, so how exactly, um, you know, when we're, when we're talking about negotiating or, you know, anything like that, I don't know, I'm not sure of like what specific points are, can be made there, but, you know, I think that there are probably a number of Democrats who are, you know, either in swing districts or, you know, are uh, at risk of being drawn out of their seat, however you want to put it, uh, who are certainly thinking about the redistricting process that's now just one month, two months, maybe, you know, two months, maybe three months away. And that's a calculus that they're having to, you know, run, run themselves. Yeah. And that's a, that's where I think the Republicans have a position of strength where they don't need to convince Celia Israel or Trey Martinez Fisher or some of the, you know, Jasmine Crockett, some of the more adamant uh, people, you know, outspoken people in this process, they just need to peel off as enough in order to get a quorum enough to get over 100, which uh, like you said, Cassie, I mean, we're talking about what, like five, six people at this point right now. And they're, I mean, it's pretty easy to go down that list and think about people who are, you know, are there members in South Texas, where, of course, there's a lot of concern about their political future based on what happened in the 2020 election. Are there members, you know, who, uh, who are in the suburban areas that, you know, A, this might not be the most popular thing in their districts right now, according to at least what some, you know, people pushing polls have been saying. And are they going to have to worry about a, you know, a district being redrawn that maybe becomes more competitive or, or things like that? You know, do they want to get in good with House leadership before that redrawing process begins? Um, but also, do they want to, you know, not be vulnerable to their to their voters uh, over these things? And, and that could be an interesting thing to see as, as to how this progresses moving forward. I think it's something that we will be, you know, hopefully you know, I, I expect we'll be talking about it in another tripcast uh, as the way this has been going. So we and shall I, see. I just need to correct the record very quickly. James, you may be totally over this. I am so excited still to this day. <laughs> I'm here for this. That's right. Your, your, meter, your meter is still at an eight or whatever it was from the beginning. Yeah, right. know <laughs> that I'm here. I'm psyched. I'm pumped. Let's go. I can't tell whether this is a bit or whether she, whether you mean it now, Cassie. You know, really. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, at least one of us will be excited to talk about this next week. Um, thank you to Cassie, James, and Karen. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, Texas Farm Bureau, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and Raise Your Hand, Texas. Talk to you all next week.